Hello and welcome to Laidback Lush, a little podcast where we talk about wine, beer, and spirits. I'm Michael, a former vineyard worker and wine and beer sales associate. And I am Gabe. I am WCT Level 3 certified in wine, and I am an administrator for a wine and spirits educating body. Fantastic. And today we are going to be talking about Bordeaux. My favorite. One of my favorites. I can't say my favorite, but it is one of my favorites. Yeah. Anybody who has had any time looking into wine, or if you've ever walked into a wine shop and said, I want a good wine, you're going to hear about Bordeaux at some point. Yeah. Particularly if you're into the world of fine wines. Exactly. These are some of the most prestigious and high-priced wines, and has some of the uh, most, I would say, um, uh, famous history. In the wine world, at least, yeah. Yeah, uh, the most famous history of pretty much any wine region in the world. This area is about 110,000 hectares, or around, what, that's like four 400,000 acres or something like that? Do not ask me to make that conversion. I will <laughs> embarrass right myself. I will, two, I will embarrass myself. 2.85 uh, acres per hectare, so do the math yourself. Uh, five million. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a massive area in the southwest of France. So when you're looking at a map of France, you go down to the southwest, and there's this little river called the Garonne River, and that's kind of what defines this whole region. Yes. So you have the Garonne River, you have the Dordogne, or Dordogne? I've always heard it pronounced Dordogne, but it's French, so I don't know if that's actually true, and I don't actually know if that really matters, because it's also French. Yeah, so the Dordogne, it uh, splits to the north of that southerly running Garonne River. North and east, to North be and east. Uh, and then the Garonne, that is going to go to the south, which splits up the area into three basic areas. You have the left bank, the right bank, and you also have the Entre de Mer. Yes. Am I, am I getting that correct? Close enough. Which literally just means uh, land between two seas. Yeah. So the way that this is going to affect how you, the listener, are going to hear about these is the left bank is going to be to the west of the Gironde and Garonne. That goes Mm -hmm. basically straight down. The right bank is going to be to the east and the north of the Gironde and the Dordogne. And then Entre du Mer is going to be that area between the Garonne and the Dordogne. Yeah, it's literally bordered there, and it's affected by rising and falling tides. Yes. But we'll get more into that, but it's important to know that kind of area. Uh, Something else that might be interesting to people is right at the border between that and the Pacific Ocean, you do have the uh, massive sand dunes that are kind of Mm -hmm. breaking up some of the wind that's coming there. And then you have to the south, this area that was planted. It is the largest man-made forest in the world at 10,000 square kilometers or around 3,900 square miles. And that allows for the area to be blocked from some of those more harsh winds. Yeah. Now, how would you describe the climate of the area? So for climate, we have a moderate maritime climate. Um, Well, traditionally, it's been a moderate maritime climate. Because the world is warming up due to climate change, it's technically subtropical now, but it's still considered moderate maritime by common parlance and wine definitions. So you mentioned these warm ocean, well, you mentioned ocean currents. So these are going to be warming ocean currents that blow in from the Atlantic. This allows the ripening season to be extended, and it also helps the area warm up a little bit quicker in spring, which helps prevent frosts from destroying your crop. Because late frosts in spring can kill off all of your buds, which is Mm -hmm. really bad because you get no grapes then. (laughs) So. Something to avoid there, Um, but thankfully these warm ocean currents help mitigate that, and again, it extends the ripening season farther into fall, which helps the grapes get fully ripe for picking. Mm. Now, don't think of this necessarily in the same way that like California is going to have ripeness. It is still cooler over here in Bordeaux, so the wines are going to be a little bit more restrained, but we'll get more into that when we talk about the wine itself. That's just something to keep in mind. So it's also very humid um, because it is right next to the ocean. It also is on a river. There's just a lot of humidity in the air. So traditionally and to this day, mold is a very big issue Mm. in Bordeaux. 
it's hard to there are people that are doing it now but it's hard to do organic farming here biodynamic farming to not spray essentially with chemicals there is a high amount of rainfall in bordeaux Ooh, that can be a problem yes so that a doesn't help with the humidity factor but on top of that if you have rain and i think we've talked about this before but if you have rain too late in the season it can waterlog your grapes essentially and what that means is the grapes get diluted by having too much water in them at the point of harvest which leads to a lower quality more diluted taste in the wine well i've also heard that so like during the blooming if there's too much rain then it can actually cause problems then it can destroy the buds and flowers yeah. and then when the grapes are just setting on the vines if you have too much rain then it can make them set improperly yeah and then when you're harvesting it can bloat them mm -hmm. there's so a lot of risks associated with too much rain because it's it's rain throughout the entire season it's not like um i don't know israel or australia where you have rains at like set points exactly. in the year it's all year which th those can still arrive at the wrong times but this can, is you're yeah. just dealing with such a large volume over the entire year exactly that's crazy. Now, something that does help is the Landis Forest does help prevent these storms from being as severe when they actually get to the grape growing region portion of Bordeaux. So that is a mitigating factor. However, the rainfall itself is still a problem. These storms would be more severe if they were just coming in from the ocean, though. And so what is some of the things that are present in the soil itself that help? Very roughly speaking, um, like Burgundy, there's all sorts of subtypes. And even within vineyards, you have more gravel at this part of the vineyard versus this part of the vineyard. But in general, the left bank of Bordeaux has more rocky gravel-based soils, except for the very top part of the Madoc, which we're going to get into the regions here just in a second. But the Madoc itself, uh, the very tippy-top portion of the left bank of Bordeaux, does have a lot more clay. Hmm. But in the O-Madoc and in Grave and Sauternes, in those areas, there is a lot more gravel. And essentially what that translates to is they're able to grow more Cabernet Sauvignon on the left bank. We will get into what that translates to for the wines later on. Yeah. And also why that allows for it. So. Yeah. And the right bank is going to be more clay. It's actually very similar to Virginia yeah. in that regard. Clay and limestone. Yes, and limestone. So Cabernet Franc and Merlot are going to be easier to grow there. And Entre du Mer is a lot more clay. There is some gravel there from my understanding, but that's a very Merlot-dominant area of Bordeaux as well. Now, this area didn't look the same throughout all of history. In fact, there are some very huge changes that were made from its inception. Now, it's my understanding that at first it was actually being ruled by, uh, well, ruled, I guess, is the wrong way of putting it, but it was settled by a group of Celtic tribesmen before eventually being taken over by the Romans. Who, who went, brought the wine. Who brought the wine, finally. Yeah. The right bank, primarily, Yeah, to begin with. Um, I think that's an important thing to say, is the right bank, even though the left bank has a higher reputation... The right bank is the oldest part of Bordeaux that's been producing wine. Well, why was that? From what I understand, it's just where the Romans settled and it was easier to localize it there. Yeah. Um, and, well, and, and a large part of the places that we do consider to be good growing places, uh, uh, Medoc and Oat Medoc. Oh, uh, yeah. Were, they were, they they were underwater. Yeah. yeah, they were underwater. Yeah. So what, uh, what else happened in that history? What kind of led us to today? So from the 12th to the 15th century... The English monarchy actually controlled Bordeaux. There was a king of England whose daughter married into the... Oh, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Yes. Uh, she married into Bordeaux's, the ruling class of Bordeaux, yeah, which so basically put it under English control. Yeah. Henry Plantagenet or something like that? Something like that. It was Henry something. I do remember Plantagenet or something. I don't know. Saying all that to say, though... This allowed Bordeaux to be given a tax-free status from the English monarchy. This, as you can probably guess, caused a huge financial boom for mm -hmm. the region, particularly for the wine merchant class, which was called the bourgeoisie. For all you Marxists that might be listening, try not to you know freak out too much over that term. <laughs> well, and I mean, this was such an important area because of that Grand uh, River, because yes, it, was a, it, was it was a trade, trade hub, port. yeah. 
So going forward a little bit, there was a civil war that was fought in France, and Louis XIV actually, in 1653, annexed Bordeaux to France. Mm. There's a lot more history we could go into, but that's a little bit past the preview of this episode. Bordeaux, as we mentioned, has an incredible amount of history associated with it. The only bit that I would throw in there is the one that transformed the landscape. Oh, yes. Share, share that. So right after the Battle of Castillon, when you were starting to get that British influence out and more of the French influence in, you also had the Dutch influence coming in. And they partnered with the French because they had tons and tons of ships. The Dutch were major tradespeople, and they used the white wines that were being produced in Bordeaux in order to distill and make their brandy. Yes. So they came in and they used their water management skills in order to drain out the marshes of the left bank, allowing for the uh, Medoc and Omedoc to be revealed under there. And what they found was this beautiful area that was covered in this dark gravel and some areas with a little bit of sand. Yeah. That was huge because it completely ended up transforming the area. And once the bourgeoisie saw that and they saw, oh, that's some that's some good territory, they actually moved a lot of their places over. Yeah. Well, and they now had the wealth to do so on top of that. After, you know, Louis the Fourteenth annexed Bordeaux and like you mentioned, the Dutch drained the swamp. Which is when all the chateaux started being built in the first place. Yes, that turned Bordeaux into even more of a trade mm-hmm. hub for all of Europe, but particularly for France, obviously. So it that really helped the wealth concentration and the ability to continue having these very high quality, high class chateaux continue to function. Yeah. And it wasn't until 1855 that we did have the next huge transformation of the region, not yes. in a physical sense, but in a political sense and an educational sense. So, well, people will debate the educational part of that, but... Well, we, we can definitely debate it. <laughs> and that's primarily because of who is responsible for it. Well, not only that, it... I actually would like to do an episode on the 1855 classification. We're talking about the 1855 classification. The Exposition Universelle de Paris. Yes. Um, So basically, Napoleon III, a.k.a. our colloquial just Napoleon, the emperor of France at the time, there's a guild of trade merchants that he approached for this Paris Universal Exposition. Uh, I didn't write the French one down in my notes, so I apologize. But same event that uh, we're talking about here. And he had this merchant guild basically seek to rank all of the top chateau of Bordeaux from the first through the fifth growths. Mm. The first growth is the highest, and then it's a downward quality level from there. That's not to say that fifth growths are bad. They're still way above like standard Bordeaux AC Mm -hmm. wine, but he wanted to show off the top and still have it ranked in a very clearly defined way. So that's where this 1855 classification came from. And basically it was determined by what the wines were selling for at the time. That is what gave us this classification. It still is in effect to this day. Um, With some small changes. Yes. Again, we would need to do a whole episode on everything that's changed since 1855, but it remains pretty intact. So the 1855 classification only listed the wines from the Omedoc with one exception. Well, two exceptions, I guess. Uh, Sauterne was ranked as well. And there is one first growth in Grave. But all of the other chateaux that were ranked in the 1855 classification were from the Omedoc. So the right bank, Grave in large, and what would now be Pesac Leonan were left out. And that is part of where people will criticize the most heavily the 1855 mm-hmm. classification is it really doesn't represent <clears throat> all of Bordeaux. It represents a portion of Bordeaux rather than a more comprehensive list. But this classification is kind of the defining classification for the most part up until modern day in Bordeaux. So how did that classification grow and evolve over time and how do we rank Bordeaux wines now? So the first through fifth growths are still, like I said, intact to this day, 
But I did want to kind of fly through the list of the primary appellations. Yeah, because the thing is, is in Bordeaux, you actually, I forget what the number is, uh, but it's like only 30% of the wines that are produced are actually premium wines. Yeah. You are looking at a couple of names to memorize, but it really is just a handful of areas. Yeah, and there's over a thousand wineries in Bordeaux. Oh, yeah. And a fraction of those are actually the world-class wines that you yeah. might have heard of before. A lot of them are, you know, 15 to $20 to grab. Um, a lot of yeah. them aren't even exported. So these ones that we're going to be mentioning are going to be the ones that are a little less generic. They're going to be more along the lines of what you might be looking for when you're looking for a prestigious one. Correct. Yeah. So the way that I organize this is very basic level, and then I'm going to do the different right bank and left bank primary ones, and then we'll kind of get into some of the more niche ones that you might see on a label after that. And I'm going to fly through these. I might give a couple of brief explanations, but I listed a lot because there is a lot that you will see on a lot of Bordeaux labels, and I want you guys to know, at least ostensibly, this is a Bordeaux wine. So at the very base of the pyramid, because remember Bordeaux, if you listen to our French wine laws episode, there's a pyramid closer you get to the top, the more quality. So the base of our pyramid is going to be the Bordeaux AC, or the Bordeaux Appellation. It might just say Bordeaux. That's going to be just base level, probably pretty cheap, early drinking wines. Then on top of that, next up, we have Bordeaux Superior, which is basically Bordeaux AC, but the minimum alcohol requirement is higher, which essentially means the grapes have to get riper in order to be called Bordeaux Superior, mm -hmm. and therefore it's going to have a little bit richer flavor, a little bit more intensity, a little bit more just that ripe flavor, which is going to put it a notch above Bordeaux AC wine. Which, these are going to be the ones that actually give you some good value. Depending on where they're coming from. Yeah, this was... There's some really bad Bordeaux yeah. AC, even some really bad Bordeaux Superiors, but... Technology has really helped this yeah. level in particular in recent years. Uh, so, But you will get some good value ones depending on yeah. where you're grabbing them from. There but, are some really incredible ones at a very affordable price. But this yeah. was the, the major change that was made recently from that system. Is uh, Originally, it was just Bordeaux AC. Yeah. That was it. It's just the general whatever. Yes. So the Madoc is going to be on the left bank. It's going to kind of be on the upper part of the left bank. And the Madoc is a set region. And then within that region, you have the Omedoc. And Madoc and Omedoc are, again, we're climbing the ladder of the pyramid. So Madoc is higher than Bordeaux Superior, and then Omedoc is higher than Madoc, because Omedoc is where a lot of these gravel soils are going to be, which that's going to play into the grapes that we're going to talk about later. So within the Omedoc, there are four kind of primary sub-appellations. Mm. And that is going to be Saint Estephe, Poyac, Saint Julien, and Margot. Poyac has the most first growth chateaus, and Poyac kind of has the highest reputation in terms of its soil content and the wines that it's capable of producing. But all four of these are going to be very highly esteemed wines in terms of their reputation and their quality. Mm. Then we move down. Back to kind of the Madoc level, we then go down to uh, Pesac Leonan, which is uh, another region. And then in that area, we also have Grave. And we also have two sweet dessert wine appellations in mm. this area, which are not part of Pesac Leonan. They are considered their own regions, but they are basically still in that area. They're just a little bit to the east. And that is going to be Sauterne. And then Barsac is going to be kind of the tippy-top wines of the dessert wines that are produced in Bordeaux. Hello, dear listener. Gabe from the Editing Bay here. So upon listening back on this section, I realized that in my notes, I actually got uh, Grave confused with Pesac Leonan. So instead of what I just said about Grave being a subregion of Pesac Leonan, Grave is actually a larger region. That's the base region in this part of Bordeaux, and it encompasses Pesac Leonan, Sauterne, and Barsac. So that is something to note is that I got that wrong on my notes, and therefore I said it wrong in the episode and did not catch it in time before recording. So apologies for that, but back to the episode. We will continue on. So that's the left bank in 
very general terms. There's over 50 appellations in Bordeaux, so I'm trying to make this as simple as possible for you guys. Hopefully that's communicating. So on the right bank, we have Pomerol and Saint-Emilion. And those are the two primary renowned quality regions, Pomerol a little bit more so than Saint-Emilion. Then we have our first growths. So we're moving on from kind of the regional and going to some specific chateau here. These, again, from the 1855 classifications, are the absolute top of the Bordeaux hierarchy. You cannot touch these wines. They are some of the most expensive wines in the world. Yeah. The futures on these, which Bordeaux futures, um, think of it as basically playing the stock market with barrels of wine. The futures go for minimum like $1,000 now. So there's a lot of money. And a lot of capital and investment in these chateaux. Be- as, for good as reason. As soon as you hear the first name, you're going to be like, oh, money. Yes, yeah. we get that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, these there's some debate as to, particularly because of climate change, should these still be considered the top wineries? But it's also like they have so much money that they can afford to make the absolute best wine that yeah. they possibly can. So these have a reputation for a reason. And that is still intact to this day for the most part. So we have Chateau Aubryon. Now, this is that one chateau that I mentioned earlier that is not in the Medoc region. This is in Grave. We have, then moving on, Chateau Lafitte Rothschild, which is in Pauillac. We have Chateau Latour, which is in Pauillac. We have Chateau Mouton Rothschild, which is in Pauillac. Uh, this one has a little bit of an interesting history. This was not in the 1855 classification as a first growth. Really? It was listed as a second growth. And then the owners of the chateau said, we want to be considered a first growth because we have documentation that we think proves that at the time we should have been listed in Mm. the first growth category. And the governing body for the Appalachian system in France actually granted them this. That's such an interesting argument to make. Like, it's not, oh, we're good enough for this. It's No, we should have been included. They made a mistake. Well, it's both, right? It's we were good enough at the time, and we still are, and we should be able to have this. And there's also the incentive of you can charge a lot more money if you're a first growth versus a second growth. Even within that little distinction, there's a lot more money to be made. So that went through in 1973. Then we move on to Chateau Margaux, which is in Margaux. And we have the one non-red producing chateau that is a first growth a lot of people don't really refer to this one as one of the first growths even though it is technically because it was a first growth in the 1855 classification and it was the only chateau that produces dessert wines to be listed as a first growth and that is chateau d'Iquem, which is d apostrophe y q u e m chateau d'Iquem is in the sauterne region that is the only first growth that produces these dessert wines Botrytized dessert wines. Listen to our Sweet Wines episode if you don't know what that means. Yeah, good times on that one. Yes. So then we're going to go back into regions for a quick second. Sometimes on a label, you might see the Côte de Bordeaux. It translates to the hills of Bordeaux. And these are five different regions that are... They're kind of like on the regular Bordeaux AC quality, but there are some very good producers in this classification of wineries as well. So if you see this on a label, if you see uh, Côte de Blaye, B-L-A-Y-E, Côte de Bordeaux, Côte de Bourg, Côte de Castillon, and Côte de Francs, these are the Côte de Bordeaux. If you see that on a label, just know that these are Bordeaux wines. They're normally going to be more Merlot dominant, not, again, they're not going to have the reputation that, like, the Omedoc has. But there are still some really good buys in these regions, and the price point is pretty good on these yeah. lines as well. I've actually mentioned several times on this podcast uh, the Côtes de Castillon as being a go-to Bordeaux introduction when I'm trying to show people what, not what Bordeaux is capable of, but just give them a general idea of what Bordeaux is growing. Yeah, and these are going to be concentrated on the right bank and in that Entrez du Mer region that we talked about earlier. That's that place in between where the river forks. Mm-hmm. Then we have our final little ranking system uh, labeling term, if you want to call it, the Cru Bourgeois. Again, Marxist, please try not to get too triggered over that term. <laughs> <laughs> so 
This is a bit of a complicated labeling term to talk about because it's changed a lot over the past couple of decades. Basically, it used to be ranked every year by wine, not by chateau. Mm. Whereas most of the other wineries in Bordeaux are ranked by the chateau. So the Cru Bourgeois kind of sought to give wineries that were not in the 1855 classification a labeling term that they could use to still say, this is us putting our best foot forward. This is a quality wine. They still can't charge first growth prices for it. There's a lot of very good Cru Bourgeois wines in the 15 to 20 range. And some of them are fairly expensive. Some of them do get into the 40s, 50s, 60s range. But these are now ranked every five years. And these wines only come from the Madoc region because, again, remember, this is a seeking to kind of make up for wineries that didn't get into the 1855 classification, mm. which was in the Madoc. There are now three levels to the Cru Bourgeois. There is the regular, which is the base level. There is superior, which is a little bit up. And then we have exceptional. So that is the Cru Bourgeois. Again, these wines are going to be pretty heavily step above your standard Bordeaux AC and probably your Cote de Bordeaux, but still not be charging even like fifth growth prices. They're going to yeah. be very, um, some of them, as I said, are not as affordable, but a lot of them are. And these are very solid wines. These are actually wines that I tend to look for now. If I want a Bordeaux and I'd kind of want to try something new, I'll look for a Cru Bourgeois because I know that a lot of effort went into making that wine. Because you have to go through the process of getting it certified as a Cru Bourgeois wine. So they're going to be putting in, the winery at least, is going to be putting in some effort into making that a good wine. So if any of that was confusing, and it probably was, I apologize. I tried to make this as simple as possible while still giving you guys the most information. Wine for Normal People, which we have talked about on the uh, podcast before, which is another wine podcast, they have an episode or, well, she has an episode, Elizabeth Schneider has an episode, episode 374, which is the Bordeaux Classifications Explained episode. Mm. That goes into a lot more depth about this classification system, the history behind it, and what these terms mean, and some of the other peripherals surrounding that. So if you're more curious about these ranking systems, I would highly recommend giving that episode a listen. But we are moving on to grapes. You've heard us mention these before, but let's get into them. So starting with the reds, what are our grapes that we're primarily growing in Bordeaux? So we have what are called the Noble Five, which are going to be Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot, and Malbec. Malbec has fallen out of favor quite a bit in Bordeaux. Petit Verdot is still used, but it's normally like at most 5% of a blend. Mm -hmm. In general, there are some actual like straight varietal Petit Verdots out there from Bordeaux, but that is very rare. Yeah, The French consider it to be too overpowering, and they prefer to use it as more of a finishing touch to a blend rather than a primary component. Now, we need to go back and talk about our regions here for a second, because the breakdown of where these grapes are grown is going to vary a little bit in between the different regions. So on the left bank of Bordeaux, because of those gravelly soils, they retain more heat and they're more free-draining, which means Cabernet Sauvignon in the Omedoc in particular and in Pesac Leonan and Grave in particular grows a lot better than it does on the mm. right bank. Since Cabernet Sauvignon needs uh, a hotter climate, it makes sense that it would need a longer growing season in yes. order to get fully ripe. If it doesn't get that longer growing season, it ends up giving out a lot more green, astringent characteristics. Come to Virginia if you want to try some underripe yeah. Cabernet Sauvignon. <laughs> um, I, it's, I've talked about it before, but it really is one of my biggest pet peeves about Virginia wine is when we try to grow Cabernet Sauvignon yeah. and we shouldn't. And it's, it's bad because you can, like, sometimes it's okay. You know, it's, it's a little astringent. The tannins can sometimes be a little bad. But you also can get elements of like mint mm -hmm. um, in a bad way, in a bad way. Yeah. It's it's not a great thing and it's very hard to integrate. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, that does have to do a lot with just the rainfall of the season or yeah. whether or not that gravel was able to absorb most of it. But this is why they have to grow Cabernet Sauvignon in those regions. And speaking of the rainfall, gravel is more free draining than clay is, and Cabernet Sauvignon, as my instructor liked to put it for WCT, does not like to have its feet wet. Mm. So that is 
a primarily left bank thing. It does grow on the right bank as well, but in much smaller quantities. And that is why the left bank kind of has the reputation of the more age-worthy wines. Again, high tannin and high acid are going to be your primary preservatives for a red wine in general. And that is going to allow for ageability. And Cabernet Sauvignon has both of those. So think Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon primarily on the left bank. On the right bank, it's going to be a lot more about Merlot and Cabernet Franc because both of these grapes can handle those clay soils. The clay soils do retain more water, and Cabernet Franc in particular can handle that a lot better. That's going to kind of be the breakdown of the primary grapes. But again, remember, we do have Petit Verdot, Malbec. Um, There are some other grapes that have been added recently. Carmenere actually came from Bordeaux originally. Carmenere is hardly ever used anymore. Carmenere is delicious, though. It is very good. I know I talk about Chile all the time, but that's where you want to go if you want to get some Carmenere. So there have been these more minor grapes, but in general, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, and, the and primary what about ones. Our whites. Our whites are going to be primarily Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon blends. Mm. I like white Bordeaux personally. Um, it's Probably a little unusual for what we expect from a lot of white wines, because a lot of white wines I think most people drink are probably going to be New World white wines. Especially the popularized Sauvignon Blanc coming out of New Zealand. Yes. Or this even is California, not, really. Yeah, this is not that. Um, because of the blending with Semillon, Semillon adds a lot more body. Uh, Semillon has a bit of a richer fruit profile to it as well. But these wines tend to be a little bit more restrained. You're not going to get that really expressive like gooseberry or grassiness. Mm -hmm. You will still get some of it, but it's going to be balanced out and tamped down a little bit by that semillon. And it's going to be more of a very high acid, more full bodied. It's kind of hard to describe these wines if you haven't tried them. They're a little bit, um, a little bit more austere. They're kind of something I would use in like a, like a lobster dish or chicken, like what you would pair more of a lighter style white wine with, but a heartier version of that dish. Well, so I hear like that's butter kind sauces, of, stuff like that. Yeah, I hear that's actually rather the point in that area. They aim it to be pairable. Yes. I mean, they, France they as a whole, they normally these regions create wines that are centered around the foods that they make. And so there's a lot of like duck, a lot of foie gras in Bordeaux. So think of these more rich, meaty and this Semillon Sauvignon Blanc pairing has that racy acidity, but also has that rounder body to compete with that yeah, and with still hold rich. up. Yes. So this is going to be primarily more, uh, again, a left bank blend of white wine. I don't really think they make a lot of white wines on the right bank. At least I haven't seen that a whole lot. So again, in 2019, a bunch of grapes were added. Um, Alvarino was one, Tariga Nacional was one, to basically be able to handle the warming of the climate in Bordeaux. So let's talk about wine styles, kind of jumping off from there. Our red blends, because pretty much, again, as I said, across the board, all red Bordeaux is going to be a blend of some kind. These are going to be structured High acid, high tannin, especially if you're talking about the Cabernet Sauvignon-based ones. The alcohol is not traditionally very high, but again, because the region's warming, that means that the grapes are getting riper, so the alcohol percentages are going up. In general, also from the right bank, you're going to have a little bit of a higher alcohol percentage because of the Merlot influence. Yeah. As opposed to the left bank with the Cabernet Sauvignon. But don't think like 14.5 Napa Caps. No, no, no. It's not quite at that level yet, at least. Yeah. Well, well, they do get up to about 14, but that's On like the higher, the higher end. Yeah. end. Yeah. These yeah. are going to be a little bit more restrained. Again, these are very structured. And these, because of just how Bordeaux handles things, they're very elegant, uh, especially at the higher levels. At your standard Bordeaux AC level, these blends are going to be pretty quaffable, easy drinking, more table wine style wines, and that's perfectly fine. But what Bordeaux is known for is kind of what I'm more talking about here is these structured blends. The region uses a lot of oak. You're going to find a lot of predominant oak in particularly, again, these higher quality wines. So your Omedox, your Saint-Julien, your Mm -hmm. Pomerols. These higher levels in the ranking system are going to have more oak. It's what, between 12 and 14 months that you're typically seeing them on, uh, being aged in oak? On, on the very early release end, I would say. 
Yeah, and a lot of that has to do because of that high tannin structure. They kind of have to, to, yeah. That gets into, though, actually what the region is really known for, for the red blends, and that's the ageability of these blends. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to be very clear, ageable wines for what we're talking about in terms of like cellaring for more than, I would say, three to five years, when we're talking about wines that can go for decades, that is not going to be an Entree du Mer wine or a Bordeaux AC wine normally. That's going to be a Saint Julien, um, a first growth, or any of the growths really are probably going to be producing some very age worthy wines. And that's what the region is really known for are these very powerful wines that can age beautifully over decades and decades mm-hmm. and decades of time. That again has to be a very conscious effort on the winemaker and producer's part. But these wines, when they reach that maturity, are just incredible. They're earthy, they're leathery, they're still very plush. That flavor from the fruit does tend to stay intact, but it takes on a bit more of a dried character to it, a bit more, um, I don't want to say perfumed because perfumed implies floral. And floral is one of the first things to drop out of a wine as it ages, but think um, expressive, I guess, maybe would be a better way of putting it just a very expressive earthy fruit oak palette yeah i can't afford aged bordeaux most of the time but let me tell you they are i actually i do have two cru bourgeois that i got actually laying oh, down no. right now yeah they're at seven years right now so we'll see and that's that's the really cool thing about this region and that's why it's spoken of so frequently because you have so much variability between vintages the blending really is an effort in order to produce quality through adversity and given that, and given the fact that they are known for their ageability and that's what they strive for, that's why you do see them being talked about so frequently. That's why different vintages are being called out as either better or worse or more ageable or less ageable. It it really is an academic smorgasbord for people who yeah. would have either a stake in the game or an educated opinion. Yeah. Or an intersection of both. In or or an educate, yeah. <laughs> there is a lot of, um, I will say, there's a lot of pretension around Bordeaux, but there's a lot of legitimacy to the reputation this region holds. Mm-hmm. Um, we already talked about, so did you have anything more on, on Reds? No, 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 not as far okay. as their, uh, I mean, you, you do have a, a little bit more of like a softer thing coming from the right bank as opposed to the yeah. left bank. But Actually, yeah, let, let's talk about yeah. that real quick. So uh, left bank wines, because they're more cab dominant, tend to be more powerful. Right bank wines tend to be more plush and plummy and like think... um. Think like a cigar lounge almost. Uh, hopefully that isn't off-putting to you as the listener, but uh, I like the way cigar lounges smell yeah. personally. Think of kind of that more like um, thick, dense, not as um, punchy, but more plush. Yeah, and they, they don't typically have as strong of tannins. Yeah. And a lot of that has to do simply because... Merlot and Cap Franc don't really have the tannin exactly. to give that Cabernet Sauvignon does, yeah. Well, and also these things, they don't have to be handled the same way because Merlot, just by nature of the skins themselves, it's more accessible in fermentation. All yeah. of those flavors come out just more readily. So they don't need as much time in order for those flavors to integrate and become harmonious. So these can also be kind of an earlier wine drinking style. I'm not saying that they... they but the yeah. the higher level still can. The higher level still can, yeah. but it's not as necessary True. as yeah. the ones on the left. It's not as frequently aimed for. Yes. So moving on from that, though, we already talked about the Semillon, Semillon Blanc white blends. So that leaves us finally to close out the episode with the dessert wines of Bordeaux, which are going to be, again, Sauterne and Barsac are the regions that those are going to be coming from. If we ever get sponsored, we'll get a Sauterne as yeah, it stands now, though. Sauterne. Yeah. I'm not I'm not even looking at them. these <laughs> bottles start at like 30 bare minimum. $30. And we're not talking about $30 for 750 milliliters. We are talking about $30. For 350 milliliters. Yeah, for, for half that. So it's just like, here's a sip, here's a sip, we're done. Yeah. But getting into the profile of these wines, you don't really need a lot of yeah. Sauterne. This is a botrytized wine, as I said earlier, which basically means there was a mold that attacks the grapes and dries them out a little bit, raisinates them a little bit, concentrates those sugars. Uh, again, listen to our Sweet Wines episode if you want more of an explanation on this. But... It also produces a very beautiful 
flavor profile, aroma profile. It gives this kind of like orangey, marmalady, funky, funky, something <laughs> or other. And these wines are incredible. Super high sugar, very high in acid as well, but you wouldn't know it. It doesn't read as much on the palate because of the sugar. These are some of the most renowned sweet wines in the world. Again, they command quite a price point. But I will say, as someone who really likes to not spend a whole lot of money on my wines, if I don't have to, these wines are absolutely worth it. If you think you don't like sweet wines, just give a Sauterne a try. I think it will surprise you. It's not Moscato. It's not this, you know, there's sugar and pear drop and apple, maybe. This is like, there's orange marmalade, there's some biscuit, there's a whole host of orchard fruits. And these wines do see some time in oak just to kind of help give some more flavor complexity, some more Mm -hmm. structure. So you kind of have these very subtle spice notes in there as well. And again, you don't need a lot of this wine because A, the uh, alcohol percentage, well, the alcohol percentage doesn't get super high, but these wines are thick. Yeah, that's that's most of it for me. And if it wasn't for their high acidity, they would be undrinkable. They, they would be drinking syrup. Yeah. They would be drinking straight syrup. But because of that acidity, it stays refreshing. It stays nice and clean tasting in a mm-hmm. way. Yeah, it's it's almost, it's a fresh lift to an otherwise funky dried flavor. Yeah. Which, again, comes from that botrytis mold. Yeah. So that closes out everything I had for Bordeaux. But we are drinking a Bordeaux right now. We are. Should we talk about it? Yeah. I and, think it's. Uh, I think it might be worth an, a mention. Yeah. So, like, it's, as... It's an all right wine, I guess. It's, it's okay. <laughs> I mean, so as, as your wines age, and you can take a look at this more in our... Uh, did, we, did we talk about tertiary aspects in our wine tasting... Uh, I believe we did cover it, yeah. We've at least talked about it enough times that if you listen to the show, you should hopefully know what tertiary notes are. So as you have, especially Cabernet Sauvignon developing, uh, it'll develop a lot more of cedar and tobacco as it ages, and it's going to make things less astringent. That complex red berry fruit and plum is going to get much softer and more integrated with everything. So today, I ended up going to a wine shop that I had never been to before in order to select a Bordeaux wine. And shout out to Megan from Women in Wine, which she has an Instagram. You should definitely go follow her, see what she's doing. Fun fact, Megan and I did level three together. No kidding. Yes. She did mention that while I was there, actually, and she said hi. <laughs> yes. Um, so so. <laughs> I, I know Megan personally, and she's wonderful. We should only interview her about women and wine. We should do that. Um, but yeah, so shout out to her for uh, making this suggestion. She didn't know who I was when I walked in. Not that I am anybody, but, uh, you know, I walked in and I was asking some you're questions. You're somebody to and, us, Michael. Oh, you're sweet. <laughs> um, but uh, I, was, I was discussing it with the first person who approached me. And I was like, I'm looking for a cab-dominant Bordeaux. I was thinking out of Omedo. Um, that would be nice. Omedo. I was thinking of Omedoc. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> the Omedo. 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 <laughs> Omedo, my favorite rope game. All uh, right, guys, we are changing the name of the podcast to Omedo. <laughs> Omedo. <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, uh, from Omedoc. And uh, she grabbed Megan and was just like, let me have her. She knows about this, that, and the other thing. She does. Megan's very knowledgeable. Uh, yeah, no, it was, we got to talking and she landed on this beautiful bottle. So this is a Cabernet Sauvignon dominant red blend from Graves, uh, from Chateau du Grand Boss. It is a 2010 and uh, I am absolutely loving this I'm, so far. Oh, I'm floored by this yeah. wine. This is delicious. Yeah, earlier, uh, while I was talking about something, he took his first sip and fell back in his chair. Yeah, this is <laughs> this is definitely a great experience. Yeah, 12 years aged yeah. Cabernet Sauvignon from Bordeaux. I'm, yeah. I'm very okay with this. I'm actually surprised at how much the fruit is still intact at this age. You're getting basically just the full gamut of what people call black fruits so blueberries black cherries blackberries plums although i would also say personally and i think this is coming from the merlot and potentially some cab franc 
I do get a little bit of a red fruit kick to it, a little bit of a lighter fruit yeah. lift to it. I would say some red cherries in particular, some very ripe red cherries. I definitely get that. And I find those are integrating with some of more of our tertiary aspects than even some of the black fruit. Yeah. And there's also a little bit of a of a stemmy quality, almost like a tomato stem or tomato leaf kind of quality. Mm. But this really is all about the oak and the tertiary basil care. stock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not quite as sweet as basil, no. but I, I get where you're going with it. But I would say this is more about the oak and the tertiary at this point, at least. Would this you throw is, thyme in there? I could see kind of herbs to Provence in general, which would include thyme. Yeah. Um, kind of that garrigue, as they call it in the Rhone Valley. Not quite as prominent as garrigue proper, but there's definitely some dried herbs going on here. Yeah. So that would fall into our tertiary characteristics. I would say the oak is very well integrated, and we're starting to get into this very earthy, leathery, very um like saddle leather. There's a lit, there's a touch, like a very slight hint of barnyard here, almost kind of like uh maybe there's a sweaty horse in a field like over from where you're at, <laughs> and like just the faintest whiff of that kind of sweaty aroma okay. over. What does your elf tongue taste? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm very You're riding the horses to Isengard. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a very sensitive nose to sweaty and animalistic aromas, which I tend to wear a lot of perfume, ironically enough, that also is very animalic. So you don't say. You always show up smelling like a barn and blood. <laughs> <laughs> That's my aesthetic. That's my Barns aesthetic. and blood. <laughs> Barns um, and blood are new. Our new podcast. Yeah, <laughs> about butchery. Neither one of us knows anything about butchery. I would love to learn about butchery, though. Anyway, that's another topic for another time. But uh, I promise I don't mean that in a serial killer way. All you true crime, <laughs> all you true crime podcast listeners. That's not what I mean. Anyway. Um, but on top of the <laughs> save me help. But on top of a little bit of that animalic twinge, there's much more of a prominent tobacco. You mentioned tobacco earlier and cedar note for me. This is very um, like cigar tobacco for mm-hmm. me. It's dried, but it's like very thick still. It's yeah. it's a little it's a little cloying and in a good way. Like it kind of sticks with you. It doesn't bit. sit with me as like a, a figgy mm-hmm. um, type of tobacco. This yeah. is not like a pipe tobacco whatsoever. This is your more refined aged and cedar cigar. I would even go as far as saying humidor? that this is, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a humidor aged cigar. I would say that this is probably like a, a medium to medium dark cigar type aroma. It's not super light. You're not getting that like more caramelly no. type deal. This, this is, is all about that earthiness. This is about earthiness. This is about a little bit of punch, not char proper, but a nice kind of darker tobacco cigar. Now I want a cigar. <laughs> right? So do I. So um, as far as the structure of this wine goes, the tannins are pretty high. Uh, they're coating everything in my mouth. Yeah. The acidity is pretty high as well. So that leads us to, you know, cab dominant. But I will say, I, I think this is probably cab dominant, but um, I, I would say there's probably a substantial amount of Merlot in here, enough to be part of, like, I guess what you would say the structure of the mm-hmm. wine would be. Again, it's very fruity still. And I'm kind of surprised by the age that it's still so fruity. And I think that's the Merlot coming through. Cab Franc could also be giving some of that little bit of that stimmy, herbaceous quality as well. But all of this is balanced so beautifully that I can't really give you a like, there's probably this much of this and this much of that. It's no. it's very well balanced. Well, the balance is impeccable on this wine. And I think because of the fact that this was blended so masterfully and then aged for so long, all of those characteristics that were aiming at this flavor they're just they're yeah. they're too well integrated. Oh yeah, this wine is a perfect example of everything we've talked about with Bordeaux in terms of blending and that vision for an ageable, high quality, refined wine. Now, what I am actually surprised at is how red this the, still the is. The color. So I'm gonna guess that's the cab playing in because cab tends to be very dark. Mm-hmm. This is a little bit lighter than your standard cab, not by a whole lot though. Uh, I, I'm actually surprised with you there in terms of how dark this still is at the age that it's at. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Michael's holding up the cork that he that was with the bottle and it the bottom's like almost black that's yeah. how purple it is yeah so imagine how deep this wine was when it was bottled I, I can only imagine this thing probably came out like ink well and uh, there's a deposit in our bottle 
which is totally normal, especially mm-hmm. for a wine of this age. So that means even more colors falling out to the bottle. And we still have this very, it's not inky, but it's, it's dark. This is a dark wine. It's dark. Like I can see a little bit of, cause as a wine ages and we got into this in a, in another podcast that we did, a lot of the pigments start to actually react and get pulled out. Yeah. And so this will end up making uh, the rim just a little bit lighter and the color will start to shift from purple to more of a brick color. Yeah. Eventually. So this is a nice kind of like red. It's it's a little bit past crimson. You, you're starting to get a little bit of uh, of more of that brickish color. It's yeah, not around the rim. Yeah. Yeah. Just around the rim. And I wouldn't even describe it as brickish. It's still very much so red, but it is starting to lean that way. Yeah. I will say something I'm starting to pick up more now as the wine is opening up is the the fruit. It's very concentrated, but it is going toward that more dried. Mm-hmm. And there are there's still some freshness here. So I wouldn't say this wine is fully, fully developed. This wine could easily probably go for at least another 10 years, I'm sure. But um, we can grab the other bottle. It was only 35 bucks. This is only $35. I know that's not necessarily the most affordable price point, but that's actually very impressive because this rivals some like $80 wines that I've had. That's Um, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So yeah, this is, (laughs) this is absolutely incredible. If you are ever in the mood for a Bordeaux, the Chateau du Grand Boss from Grave is a great choice. Yeah. This is, I, I'm very impressed with this. Thank you, uh, Megan, so much for your recommendation. Shout out, Megan. Yeah, shout out to Megan again. Came in clutch. Came in clutch. Also, if you happen to be on Instagram because you were going to follow Women in Wine, you should also give a follow to Laidback Lush. That was a good one. That that was, a, I, I'm... Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm, I, I, I'm proud of that one. That was, <laughs> that was a really good one. Uh, we are on Instagram and Twitter. We also just ended up uh, changing over our hosts. If you are subscribed to our Buzzsprout page, we are now on a place called Acast, and the links to our new podcast website are in our bios of Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. So for this and more changes, follow us at Laidback Lush. Yes. Indeed. Indeed. Um, thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, we've had a great time. If you have any questions about Bordeaux or want us to go into more specifics in a future episode. I have a question. Wh- what? What's our next episode topic going to be, Michael? Oh, and in our next episode, we are going to be talking about tequila yes now we know that we had an episode on mezcal and if you haven't had a chance to listen to that please do but tequila does have its own story it's going to be a bit of a shorter episode but we would love to be able to share it with you Mm -hmm. uh, and discover it ourselves so yes indeed yeah so thank you guys so much again i've been michael i've been gabe cheers cheers